You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast. www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, well, there's nothing you can't ask on the Savage Lovecast. I'm going to open this week's show with a quick shout out to all my listeners in Missouri, the show me state. Also at the moment, the show me your recently elected Republican governor being led away in handcuffs state. Governor Eric Greitens ran as an outsider in 2016. He ran as a family values pro-lifer and he ran as, well, let's just listen to one of his campaign ads. I'm a Navy SEAL and I'll take dead aim at politics as usual. I'm Eric Greitens. If you're ready for a conservative outsider, I'm ready to fire away. NRA-backed gun nut. The sound you hear at the end of that campaign ad, all that boom, 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 booming, is Greitens firing an automatic weapon at a can of gasoline. And this gun-humping family values crusader, he was arrested last week on a felony charge of privacy invasion. You can find his mugshot now on the internet. The married father of two's legal woes stem from, I hope you're all sitting down for this, an affair he had in 2015 with a married woman. He probably could have gotten away with the affair if he hadn't bound this woman to some workout equipment in his basement using duct tape and then blindfolded this woman and then taken nude photographs of this woman without her consent, photos he threatened to release on the internet if she ever told anyone about the affair that they were having. She told just one person, her then-husband, now her ex, who violated her privacy by secretly recording a phone conversation he had with her about the reasons for their divorce, which included the affair with Greitens, and then releasing those conversations to the media. So bondage, not a crime, but blackmail, revenge, porn, and in Missouri, invading someone's privacy, a crime. Greitens is refusing to resign, and the GOP in Missouri is blaming his legal problems on the all-purpose left-wing boogeyman George Soros. Somehow, George Soros, billionaire, forced Eric Greitens, Navy SEAL, to tie up his lover and take nude photographs of her without her consent and then threaten her with them. Meanwhile, over in Australia, the deputy prime minister and the head of one of Australia's largest political parties, the National Party of Australia, this guy named Barnaby Joyce, he had to resign last week after the news broke about an affair that he was having with a staff member. Joyce, married father of four, would be a Republican if he was an American politician, family values, conservative crusader, is leaving his wife, the mother of his four children so far, for a woman half his age because that woman, that former staffer, is pregnant. Same-sex marriage was just legalized in Australia after a really divisive and unnecessary public vote. And one of the loudest voices urging Australians to reject marriage equality... Barnaby Joyce, because he's a family values guy, he mouthed all the usual arguments against marriage equality. Marriage is about religion. Never mind that straight atheists are allowed to marry. Marriage is about children. Never mind that straight married couples can remain childless without having their marriage licenses revoked. And marriage is about monogamy. Never mind that straight married couples are free to practice ethical non-monogamy or, as in Mr. Joyce's case, non-ethical non-monogamy. But you do have to give Joyce credit for pushing one new and novel argument against marriage equality. If Australia legalizes same-sex marriage, Asians won't want to eat Australian cows. 
Seriously, Joyce argued during the campaign that marriage equality would hurt Australia's cattle industry, their beef exports, because Asians are conservative and won't want to eat gay married Australian beef. Jumping back to the United States, married conservative family values, Utah State Rep. John Stannard resigned late last month after it was reported that he had hired a prostitute, a female one, more than one, and more than once, paid for hotel rooms to meet up with these prostitutes with government funds, and did all this despite having backed, loudly backed, and called for and stumped for legislation upping penalties for sex work. Three family values politicians, three affairs, bondage, blackmail, unplanned pregnancies, sex workers, Government corruption, I am amazed, not by the fact that these family value types keep getting exposed as moralizing hypocrites. That happens all the time. What's amazing is that we've had three in a row, three family values conservative men exposed as hypocrites, and not one, not one was caught with a dick in his mouth. They're yours, straight people. Three breeders. Nice change of pace. All right, coming up on today's show, tons of your cues, lots of my A's on the free micro edition of the Savage Lovecast and on the Magnum subscription edition of the Savage Lovecast that you can subscribe to at savagelovecast.com. Twice as long and no ads. We've got Emily Best here from Seed and Spark and the genius behind a new web series called Fuck Yeah! Modeling Enthusiastic Consent. That's on the Magnum coming up. Uh, hi, Dan. I am a late 20s queer human. And um, so the situation I'm calling about is I became, I guess, what you would be calling a unicorn, a third for uh, a slightly older couple. Um, it was a really beautiful way that the whole thing started. And they um, invited me to come live with them. Um, and it was at a time when I didn't have a place to live and couldn't really afford a house. And so I moved in with them and things were really great and wild and exploratory and fun at first. Um, but I didn't really know my level of, I guess, bisexuality at the time. And I kind of realized that things weren't really working out with the woman. It's a um, heterosexual or not heterosexual, they're both bisexual, but it's a couple, uh, male and female. And um, I, over time, kind of extracted myself from the sexual relationship with them, which was really tough, especially for the woman. I think I kind of broke her heart. She had a lot of strong feelings for me, but I continued to live with them and we were all really honest with each other and working through all of that um, step by step and came to the point where I could be a best friend living with them that they were still supporting uh, financially in the sense of giving me a place to stay and, you know, cooking for me. And so it's been, I, I moved out for a while, then I moved back in with them and I'm with them now and things are becoming really stressed because we're living in really small, close quarters together. And I'm just working, trying to get my creative career off the ground, but still not bringing in an income. And I'm feeling very kind of selfish and like I haven't been attentive to a lot of their needs and I feel like I'm using them like I don't want to be a leech I love them so much but I also need so much time right now to myself and I don't really have the time in this space and um, I just want to kind of get your thoughts on at what point does that kind of imbalance and power in a relationship turn into something that is 
not healthy? And is this a kind of like, what well, what can I do to salvage this relationship? I'm feeling there's a lot of stress and there's also a lot of insecurity on all of our parts about how that power dynamic is playing out. But at the same time, they still say that they want me here. And I do really love living here and I don't have the means to move out right now. So you're not fucking them anymore. And it sounds like you're so busy trying to get your creative career off the ground that you're not doing for them anymore. You're not doing chores around the house. You're not making yourself available emotionally or socially to provide them with something in exchange for everything that they're providing you. Yeah, no wonder it's a fucking stress fest at that house. You don't want to be a leech. And it sounds like they've invited you to come back knowing that it wasn't a sexual commodified exchange any longer. Used to be that you were the kept boy. Now you're the sitcommy friend who lives in the house who doesn't contribute dick or groceries or maintenance or gardening or house cleaning or anything. Yeah, dude, you need to move the fuck out. This is going to be a stress test. I don't know why they invited you to come back and live with them uh, again in the first place, unless they perhaps felt responsible for you in some way, or they genuinely felt affection for you and wanted to help you because they had the space, perhaps not the physical space, the emotional space to support you at this time. You're trying to get your creative career off the ground. But if you're trying and trying and trying and trying and not really getting anywhere, then you're going to have to do what most creative people do and get a fucking job that allows you to pursue your creative pursuits when you're not working, but that makes it possible for you to provide for yourself and stop living off this couple's generosity. And if not a job and moving out and finding a room and finding another space, then you need to go to them and say, I'm going to make more time available to you guys emotionally or socially or chore wise so that there's something in this for you too. Cause right now you're just taking and taking and taking and they're giving and giving and giving. And maybe they think of themselves as giving people and want to be giving and genuinely still have affection for you. But even in a circumstance like that, where you're giving to someone that you like and want to give to, if you give and give and give and give and you get nothing in return, and it really does sound like they're getting nothing from you in return, not the dick they were getting at the outset of this relationship, not chores, help, FaceTime, anything from you right now because you hardly see them because you're so busy with your creative pursuits, yeah, you need to go to them and, and work that out. If not, making time in your busy creative pursuit schedule for a job that allows you to support yourself like most creative types do before their creative work provides them with enough income to support themselves, then prioritizing yard work, cleaning, whatever it is that they need from you so that they feel like they're not being exploited. So they feel like they haven't invited a leech into their house and into their lives. Don't want to feel like a leech? Don't leech. Hey, Dan and the uh, tech savvy at risk use. I am struggling with the Madonna horror complex. It's something that has been become apparent to me in the, in the recent couple months. I've been reading more about it and I'm just not sure what to do. I think I might have the Madonna whore complex and I've heard you talk about it. How do I, I'm just lost. I just don't know what, what to do. How do I deprogram from that programming? I really need some help here. I've destroyed a lot of relationships 
and uh, I don't want to destroy any more. I, I, I'm single now, and I'm scared to get another relationship. This is probably something you need to work on with a shrink. The Madonna heart complex is typically beaten into people's heads by religious traditions, by family, by what was modeled for them, by their parents. And uprooting that and tearing that out and solving the earth in which that grew, that is a process that's going to take a little bit of time and the kind of in-depth exploration and interrogation, self-interrogation, that a therapist can provide you with, not a snarky asshole with a sex advice podcast. That said, and, and here's my run at it, you have to accept that people are complex and contradictory. Men who have Madonna whore complexes, they value women for their purity. So you want to put the Madonna up on the pedestal and you feel like only that Madonna is worthy of your love. That a woman earns your love and your affection and your attention and your commitment by dint of her purity. Madonna, mother of God, a virgin, crapped out a kid, immaculately conceived by her own mother. Immaculate conception, the virgin birth, two different things. Please consult your catechism. The issue here, of course, is there are no Madonnas. Not even the Madonna was a Madonna. There was no immaculate conception. There was no virgin birth. These are myths. So... If you have this Madonna whore complex, what you've done is convinced yourself that the only woman that you could ever possibly love is a woman who doesn't fucking exist. Immaculately conceived, craps out kids after virgin, immaculately conceived women who somehow have kids despite never having had intercourse with anyone. Those women don't exist. It really is self-defeating to invest in this myth, this idea that only a woman who is pure is worthy of your love. A whore, however, arouses you, attracts your attention. You want to be with your whore. You want to touch that whore with your dirty dick and do dirty, disgusting things with that woman that you regard as a whore. Men who have Madonna whore complexes, when this term was invented, tended to have wives that they worshipped and they put on a pedestal and they terrorized because if she did anything that could be perceived as a blemish on her Madonna status – that woman was unworthy of your love and had to be bullied back up onto that fucking pedestal. And then they had women that they had sex with. And I would say the Madonna whore thing is equal parts misogyny and self-loathing. A woman with desire and agency and experience is damaged goods, unworthy of your love and attention and affection, but also your desires. What comes out of you is disgusting. The feelings, the erections, the women you're attracted to, the women you want to have sex with, what they draw out of you is disgusting. Your desire is disgusting. Your erection is disgusting. Therefore, if you touch someone with that dirty dick of yours, the disgusting cooties are transferred from her to you. And it really is a projection of sex negativity and self-loathing onto that woman you will have sex with, onto that whore. Like I said, this is something you're going to have to work on with a therapist. Go get yourself a shrink who can peel back the layers and you can figure out how the fuck this came to be pounded into your head and how it's come to do the damage it's done to your romantic life, to your relationships. Because until you reconcile that someone can be both Madonna and whore, they can be both worthy of your love and worthy of your sexual attentions at once, you're going to be miserable and alone. And you will deserve to be alone because no woman 
wants to be on that pedestal, wants to be policed, wants to have to perform purity 24-7 to win your love, and no woman wants to be the object of your projected sexual disgust and self-loathing. So get thee to a therapist. Go. Hi, Dan and the Tech Savvy at Rescue. I am a queer 28-year-old woman calling from the East Coast. My girlfriend's sister is recently single, and we were hanging out with her the other day, and she had downloaded the app Bumble. And I was like, oh, wow, I've never, I've never used one of these apps before. I've been with my partner for a while, and all of that kind of evaded me. So I was kind of having fun, like swiping for guys for her, finding guys that I thought were handsome or attractive. I stumbled upon a really beautiful black man. I was like, oh my God, he's so cute. I really like him. I loved his, um, his little about me. And then he's like, I don't mean to be racist, but no black guys. And me and my girlfriend turned around, stared at her, and we were like, um, but that is racist. What are you talking about? So, but she feels like it isn't. She just feels as though she's not attracted to them. But I feel like as a crazy liberal borderline socialist who sees racism and colonialism in every dark corner of the American experience, I feel like it's racist. But she feels like it isn't. She feels like it's just a physical attraction that isn't there. And then I do understand that sometimes we're attracted to people that we look like and and I understand that, you know, her and my girlfriend grew up in a um, kind of more of a rural town where there was maybe five black people at their high school, whereas I grew up in a West Coast town where all of my friends were of every color, every culture. And that is just very embedded in, in me. And, and so when I, I've dated every type of person, I'm attracted to every culture, every color. So I just figured that's what it should be. But anyways... I wanted to ask you, because I could be wrong, I do feel like it's racist, but any help and weigh in on this would really help me out because I'm just kind of feeling a little icky about it and feeling like it was a, I don't know, a a prejudice comment that I, I didn't really appreciate. You're right and you're wrong. You're right in that this is probably racist, particularly the way that your girlfriend's sister expressed herself in the moment, definitely racist. You're wrong, however... If you're arguing that your girlfriend sister is obligated to sleep with people that she is not attracted to, to avoid being racist in behavior, being called a racist, we're attracted to who we're attracted to. Rather than point a finger at someone who says they're not attracted to black guys or Asian guys or Arab guys and calling them racist, a better strategy is to tell them they really need to make sure that this is who they're attracted to legitimately themselves, that they're not just acting on what the culture told them was attractive because there are beauty ideals and our beauty ideals are fucking racist as hell. And sometimes we move through life without ever questioning who we're attracted to and why. And if we begin to question it, if we step outside our comfort zones, we may find that we are attracted to more types of people than we believed ourselves to be. Because at first, particularly when we're young, a lot of us are just out there pursuing what we've been told is attractive, what we've been given permission to desire. And when we give ourselves permission to desire those things that we actually desire, when we give ourselves permission to assess 
people not based on what the culture told us about those people, about their value erotically or otherwise. We often find that we're attracted to more and different types of people than we ever imagined ourselves capable of being because we're just so trapped in that box of our upbringing, our culture, our community, our environment. And brought up in the United States, brought up just about anywhere in the world, it's going to be a racist culture and a racist environment. And again, beauty ideals are shaped by racist attitudes. You see this play out in all sorts of different ways. Culture sends us a million different messages about what is attractive. Some of those are legitimate. Sometimes we are attracted to the reigning beauty ideal, whatever it might happen to be at any given time, and it's constantly changing. Sometimes that's not what we want, or it's not the only thing that we want, or the only kind of person we might be attracted to. Sometimes people sleep with people they're not attracted to at all because they're afraid to sleep with the people they are attracted to for fear of the stigma or shame. See this with people who are gay and closeted and sleeping with opposite sex people. You see this with people who are attracted to larger people who are sleeping with skinny bitches because that's what their friends think is hot. They don't want to be embarrassed in front of their friends. So they sneak off and sleep with somebody large that they wouldn't be seen with in public. And they parade around the skinny bitch girlfriend or boyfriend for fear of the judgment or shame. And it happens with race too. If your girlfriend and her sister are from a racist community or even a community where there weren't a lot of people of other races around to present them with options to the reigning beauty ideal. Yeah, racist culture could absolutely shape her desires. But again, I don't think you should look at her and say, that's fucking racist. Go suck some black dick or I'm going to call you a racist for the rest of your life. Suck some black cock. Say to her, you know, there are a lot of great and hot black guys out there and you should think about whether you're not attracted to black guys or you just bought into a culture that told you that black guys aren't attractive. If you're not attracted to black guys, that's a preference, I guess. You have to figure out a way to express that preference that isn't racist, that isn't demeaning, isn't degrading, and you own it. And part of what you have to own is the likelihood that a racist culture and racist beauty ideals shaped what you find attractive. doesn't mean you have to sleep with people you're not attracted to to push back against that enculturation. But you have to own it. You have to acknowledge it, that a racist culture may have written that script for you. But now that you're an adult, you get to write your own script. And it's more exciting and more fun to sleep with more and different types of people. Sometimes when you step outside your comfort zones, when you set your preferences aside, you discover something about yourself, something that was in you, this capacity to find other and different types of people attractive. And you realize that what you thought you wanted was what you were told you were allowed to want and that you actually want more. Hi, Dan. I'm a 47-year-old cisgendered female. I'm getting married for the first time in April to the man of my dreams. We both come from families that are liberal politically, but otherwise conservative. We're both vanilla in everyday life with full-time office jobs, but we enjoy a deliciously kinky sex life. I'd fantasized aloud to my fiancé about working in a BDSM store, and on one of our kinky toy shopping trips, he encouraged me to ask about working there part-time. Well, I've been working there two nights per week for a little over a year, and I absolutely love it. I'm my true self there, and I really love everyone on the staff. I'm the only one with an office job and the only one whose family doesn't know that I work there. I want to invite them to my wedding, but I'm nervous about my family asking questions about who they are. They all have what my family would consider edgy looks. 
everything from blue hair to tattoos to nose piercings, and I'm sure my parents would wonder who they are. But they're all also really smart and kind and open, and I treasure each of them. I asked a couple of people if they'd be willing to lie about how we know each other if they come to the wedding, and they were both completely fine with it. I hated to ask them, but it's the only way I can think to make it work, and I trust all of them to keep my confidence. And by the way, my fiancé is totally supportive of inviting them, and it might even have been his idea. So Dan, what do you think? Is it too risky to invite them? The risk being that my family would find out that I'm kinky? Or should I just say, fuck it, I'm 47, these are my friends, I want them to celebrate a happy occasion with me, and my parents will be fine. Any advice would be greatly appreciated. You're 47 fucking years old. Invite whoever you'd like to invite to your wedding and stop being afraid of mommy and daddy and what they might think of your friends or how you met them. I can understand why you wouldn't want your parents to sit there at the wedding working out that you are kinky. You don't want your parents sitting at your wedding thinking about how you like to fuck your husband or whoever else you guys might be fucking. You don't want your parents thinking about it any more than your parents really want to be thinking about it, any more than you want to be thinking about your parents' sex life. So if it's going to give your sex life away to your mom and dad, and moms and dads, as my mother always liked to say, there are things they have a right not to know, then coming up with a little face-saving lie about where it is you've been working a couple of nights a week, tattoos, piercings, blue hair, all you got to do is tell your mom and dad that you're working a couple nights a week just for fun as a barista. And mom and dad will understand them as barista urban types and not question that because people typically don't look at blue hair piercings and tattoos and think kinky, think BDSM. They think urban, subculture, white folks, coffee. They make coffee. Mom and dad will buy that. Invite your friends to your wedding. And don't overthink it and don't worry about it. Have everyone agree on a cover story if your parents ask, which they probably won't. Hi, Dan, and the tech savvy at Risk Youth. I discovered your show a year ago, and I've been listening to every episode one by one. I'm currently on episode 505, so I'm still a little bit behind. I've listened to numerous rants about this topic, but I could wait no longer to call. I respect your views on guns. But there's one aspect that I've never heard you or anyone else address, and I would like to hear your response. Banning guns does not prevent gun violence. In a perfect world, there would be no guns, but we don't live in a perfect world, so there will always be guns. And banning guns will only take them away from responsible gun owners. And if someone is going to go on a shooting spree, they will still find a way to get get their hands on a gun. And a gun-free zone has never prevented a shooting. They've tried banning weed and meth and other drugs, and that has never stopped people. So banning guns will not keep guns out of people's hands. They will just only be in the hands of criminals. And on another note, a specified trained security person would not be firing blindly into a dark crowd. Um, I do enjoy your rants, and you have changed my mind about many topics, but I'd like to hear your response to this. After every mass shooting, The Onion republishes a story. Headlined, no way to prevent this, says only nation where this regularly happens about mass shootings, about this kind of obscene gun violence. Other nations, like Japan, allow people to own guns, allow law-abiding citizens to own guns. 
But the bar is high. In Japan, to purchase a gun, to own a gun, and I'm quoting from the Atlantic here, you have to attend an all-day class and pass a written test, which are only held once per month. You also must take and pass a shooting range class. Then head over to a hospital for a mental test and a drug test. Japan is unusual in that potential gun owners must affirmatively prove their mental fitness. And then you have to file those forms with the police. Finally, you have to pass a rigorous background check for any criminal record or association with criminal or extremist groups. And then you will be the proud owner of your shotgun. You also have to provide to the police documentation of the specific location of the gun in your home as well as the ammo, both of which must be locked and stored separately. And remember to have the police inspect the gun once per year and retake the class and the exam Every three years. That is how law-abiding citizens in Japan get their hands on guns. Japan last year, 11 gun deaths. United States, what, 50,000, 60,000 gun deaths? We had more than 11 victims at one mass shooting this week in Florida. We are awash in guns that are too easy to obtain. The shooter in Parkland at Stonewall Douglas legally purchased that AR-15 at 19 years old, without having to pass a mental fitness test, without having to register that gun with the police, without having to clear any bars. And we see where that ease of access to guns leads. It leads to mass shootings, leads to appalling levels of gun violence in this country, including appalling levels of suicide in this country, which is typically what guns are used for. A lot of these gun deaths every year aren't mass shootings, they're suicides. And having a gun in the house... Research shows ups the odds that you will be killed or you will kill yourself. And it's typically not a stranger that kills you when there's a gun in your home, but someone that you're related to, often an abusive husband or boyfriend. This argument that if we ban guns or we have stricter gun control, that only criminals will have guns, therefore we shouldn't regulate guns at all, well, I guess we shouldn't. Ban rape because rapists are going to rape. Even if rape's illegal, we shouldn't ban murder because murderers are going to murder even if murder is illegal. And yet we ban rape. We also have all sorts of laws that regulate products, the use of which can have consequences for those who aren't using them themselves. Why ban drunk driving? Because some people are just going to get drunk and drive. Well, you ban drunk driving and you punish people for drunk driving. Because other people, innocent people, suffer when idiots get drunk and get behind the wheel of a car. Well, other people suffer. Innocent people suffer in our country as we see over and over and over again when idiots have easy access, abusers have easy access, lunatics like the guy who shot up that school, Sandy Hook, have easy access to guns. No one's talking in this country about banning the private possession of firearms. We're talking about reasonable regulations and controls that make sure fewer firearms fall into the hands of people who should not own them. People who are guilty of domestic violence. They typically have a history of domestic violence. Committing an act of domestic violence, having a domestic violence charge or conviction on your record should disqualify you from gun ownership based on what we know about the likelihood of an abuser picking up a weapon, picking up a gun in his home and killing his partner. These are the kind of regulations we're talking about. Stricter background checks, closing the gun show loophole, requiring training 
for people who want to own firearms, requiring safe storage so fewer guns fall into the hands of toddlers. We have an epidemic in this country of toddlers shooting other toddlers, toddlers shooting friends, shooting parents, shooting siblings, because we have so many fucking guns laying around because there's no penalty for the parent. Whenever some toddler finds a gun and shoots his mother or shoots a sibling or a playmate, we shrug our shoulders and say, well, this is a tragedy. How sad for the family. We don't say, perhaps we should criminalize. Perhaps there should be legal penalties. Perhaps people should be legally required to lock their fucking guns up in gun safes, to store them safely so that three-year-olds can't pick them up and point them at their parents and pull the fucking trigger. CNN busted out a couple of charts this week you might want to look at. Americans own half of the estimated 650 million civilian-owned guns worldwide. Americans own more guns per capita than the residents of any other country. The U.S. has less than 5% of the world's population, but 30% of global mass shooters. And gun homicide rates are 25.2 times higher in the U.S. than in other high-income countries because of access, because there are too many guns. And purchasing a gun, legally purchasing a gun, is too easy. We want the bar set higher. Gun owners should be the people out there clamoring for stricter and better gun control, responsible gun owners. But you don't see that. You see what about-ism from gun owners. You see look over there-ism from gun owners. If you take my gun away, I'm a responsible gun owner. Hey, responsible gun owner, no one's coming to take your gun away. But if you take my gun away, says responsible gun owner, then only the irresponsible gun owners will have guns. Only the criminals will have guns. Stricter gun control? will mean that the criminals won't be able to access guns as easily. Will a gun still sometimes fall into the hands of a criminal? Yes. Will some people still drive drunk, even if it's illegal, even if there are penalties? Yes. You don't throw out or scrap drunk driving laws because some assholes are still going to get drunk and drive. Your argument is fundamentally dishonest and disproved by the experiences of other countries all over the world that have strict and responsible gun control legislation and don't see the kind of carnage that we see in this country because of guns, because of the fetishization of guns, and because of dishonest bullshit arguments like the one you're advancing, caller, and thank you for liking the show and thank you for listening to the show. I'm sorry we disagree about this topic, but it was a bad week for guns, and I'm upset. I don't mean to jump down your throat, but your argument is dishonest. As has been pointed out again and again and again, Australia had a string of mass shootings like the ones we have every fucking week in this country, and they banned assault rifles. They banned these weapons of war in 1996, and they haven't had a single mass shooting since. Look it up. And then tell me that banning assault rifles, banning things like the AR-15, taking these weapons of war out of Walmarts all over the country isn't going to have an impact. If criminals are still going to get these weapons, even if they're illegal, how come they can't get them in Australia? How come they can't get them in Japan? How come they can't get them in Germany and the United Kingdom? How is this thing, gun control, that works everywhere else in the world, it's just not going to work here? It's a dishonest, NRA-backed, bullshit argument. And I think you're better than that, caller. I think you're smarter than that. And if you do some reading about gun control, if you stop buying into this bullshit that people are coming to take your guns, I would like to take your guns, all of them, but there's no movement to do that, that people are going to repeal the Second Amendment, I would like to do that, that's not going to happen. What people are demanding 
that the traumatized survivors at Stonewall Douglas are demanding is gun control, responsible, sane, comprehensive, nationwide, effective gun control policies that will make sure that guns are only in the hands of responsible gun owners. You can't claim to be a responsible gun owner and oppose responsible gun control legislation that would assure that guns are only in the hands of responsible gun owners. You disqualify yourself from the responsible gun owner label and identity when you oppose gun control. Anyway, end of rant. Thank you for calling. I hope you continue to enjoy the show. Hi, Dan. Um, I've been reading your column since the 90s when I was a freshman at NYU, and I wish I had more of a fun question for you, but uh, here goes. I'm 40 now. I'm a bi-partnered woman in um, in the East Coast, and um, I have been trying to have a baby with my boyfriend for the past year and a half now. We've been pregnant a few times and none of them have worked out and uh, had a a couple miscarriages and a couple chemical pregnancies. The question is about sex. It's pretty hard to have a really great time trying to conceive. When we started, it was super kinky and fun because, you know, after trying not to get pregnant for 20 years and suddenly I'm trying to get pregnant, it was like, ha-ha. That's not the case anymore. It's become a huge chore. It's over really quickly. We have to do it every other day. And for the first time in my entire life, I find myself dreading sex and dreading intimacy. And I I guess I'm just asking, like, first of all, do you have any advice for it being more fun? And second of all, even if it can't be fun now, do you think we're doomed after hopefully we either have a successful pregnancy or, you know, stop trying to have a pregnancy and, you know, go about some other way of having a kid. Do you think we'll ever be able to get back to our fun, kinky, exciting sex life that we used to have? I really love my boyfriend and he's great, but this sex that we're having feels like it's not about me at all, uh, just about getting him off and getting him off as quickly as possible. And I feel pretty disconnected from him now when we are having sex. That's all. It's one of the things that distinguishes gay sex from straight sex is that all gay sex is recreational. I'm old enough to remember when there was a roaring cultural debate about recreational versus procreational sex. And only procreational sex was okay. Uh, And recreational sex was controversial. But in reality, most of the sex that people have most of the time is recreational. People want to have a lot more sex than they do babies. And there's this moment in the lives of opposite-sex couples where many decide to shift from recreational to procreational sex, where the sex isn't about pleasure and connection and enjoyment anymore. It's not recreational. It's about the mission, which is to create the baby. And some people find, particularly if they're having difficulty conceiving or they're having miscarriages, that they begin to associate sex with this painful and frustrating, sometimes often traumatizing experience. And I'm dragging Nancy onto the show because you had that kind of experience. I'm an expert. You are an expert by dint of your personal experience. Do you want to share your own story? Yeah, sure. So first of all, for those of you who are like 
uh, trying to conceive and are having miscarriages, and I know you're out there, if this is triggering for you, you're going to want to fast forward because it's hard stuff. I know. I've been through it. I've, uh, I've got two kids. Spoiler. Everything worked out for me in the end, but uh, I had nine miscarriages. So I know, caller, I, I fucking know what you're going through. There's I really a long do. gap between the birth of your first child and the successful birth of your second child. Yeah, yeah. And there was, we tried for a long time before the first one too. So yeah, it was a really, it, it's so hard. And I, I just, I, once again, I just, I really understand what you're going through. But the first thing that I want to say to you, like right away is, stop having sex every other day that is deadly like that is a that's that's a terrible schedule I don't, I, I don't know if you've looked into understanding your own fertility but there's only like four or five days when you are actually able to conceive and there are ways of figuring out when those days are with much more accuracy like there are all these tools out there today that mm-hmm. allow us to do that so this endeavor of having sex every other day that that would be really, really hard. Most people don't even want to have recreational sex every other day. That's high libido recreational sex having. Yeah, that's a lot. Yeah. How do you prevent, if you've had a series of miscarriages, as you did, how do you prevent associating the sex that you're having right now with that potential very painful outcome when you're endeavoring to conceive and that's why you're having sex? And that must be in the back of your mind after a while, that you're kind of, you may be setting yourself up again for this trauma of a miscarriage you can't get that out of your head like give up in a way like you know i sort of have some unpleasant news for you which is that as long as you're like trying to conceive and you're beginning to feel desperate it's just not going to be that fun but cutting cutting the frequency way down can help a lot because then at least you can look forward to it when you know that it's going to be happening only once a month Mm -hmm. and you save you save your time for then you can build up the the excitement and the passion for having or having some sex. And but you know what? Until you like you said, caller, until you either have a kid or you take the next step and move on to adoption or, or some other way to have a kid, sex might not be that much fun. But after that phase is over and it's finite, it's going to end, it comes roaring back. It definitely does. You just gotta get through this hell for now. It reminds me of uh, the kind of sex you have after you have a kid, which typically isn't great sex because you're exhausted and you're stressed out. And having an infant and a toddler is a little bit like a never-ending relay race when you're a couple and you're passing this kid back and forth. And there's not a lot of time for the greater fun or kinky or sort of extended sex you had when you were childless. That comes back itself. The opportunity for that kind of sex comes back. And it was my experience when Terry and I were parents of an infant that we had to say, it's not going to be great right now. It's going to get great later. And by just articulating that, it helped us not weld this isn't great to like the feelings of arousal or impulse. Like, you know, we didn't make this association, this unbreakable association between sex and it being hurried and not really feeling connected during it because we were so stressed out and exhausted. And I imagine it must be the same sort of thing. You need to tell yourself that the sex you're having right now as you're attempting to conceive and it's a frustrating process as it was for you, as it is for the caller, don't allow that association to solidify. Don't carve it into marble. Tell yourself that this will pass, that it will come back and it will be great again. And just saying that to yourself and saying that aloud to each other makes it likelier that it will come back and it will be great again. 
And you have that to look forward to. If you tell yourself, oh, my God, what if it's always like this? You up the chances that it will always be like this. Yeah, absolutely. It's true. That's totally true. And you can look at it with your partner as being like, um, it's like a project you're undertaking. You guys are like, in this endeavor, it's going to end. And your, your great sex life will come back. And, you know, if you actually have a kid, it's going to be even longer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's the paradox. Like, if you get what you want, which is a successful pregnancy and you have a uh, you have the baby from it then the like you've extended the period of the lousy sex life for at least another 16 18 24 36 months yeah yeah it's true but that's okay if you if you, if you actually succeed and have that baby then it's all right you're gonna have maintenance sex yeah during the relay race stage of your young child's life in the same way that right now you're having purposeful on a mission sex, which doesn't feel particularly joyful. No, but you know what can help? It helps everything. If you can have a sense of humor about it, it helps so much. If you find yourself like, oh shit, honey, I'm fertile. We have to fuck in the car right now. That's funny. Mm-hmm. And like, <laughs> acknowledge it to each other. And, you know, and also, you know, it should, if you guys have a good relationship, it really should bring you closer together. God, do I sound sanctimonious right now? <laughs> But it did. It brought you and your husband closer it did. together. It definitely did. I mean, we went through, it felt like we went through like a little bit of a war together. And I mean, it helped, it helped a lot that we ended up, you know, having our kids. But just going through that with somebody, it, it should bring you together. And just keep telling yourself that you're, it just, it's going to pass. It will pass. And it sucks. And people don't understand. But I do. Can I prescribe what I often prescribe for people who are having these sorts of Tense sex problems. Smoke some fucking pot. Oh yeah. <laughs> Did you smoke some fucking pot? Oh uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> Why not? Now, now I do. Uh, well, at the time, I wasn't as into smoking pot then as I am now. Listen to me. I'm telling everything to you guys. Um, yeah, no, I, I wasn't as into smoking pot back then, and because I was on this wheel of either pregnant or recovering from a miscarriage, that always felt like the wrong time to get high. Like if you're, if you're pregnant, you know, you really shouldn't be getting high if right. you're pregnant. And so there's that time when you think you just might be, you don't know yet, mm-hmm. and the time right before. So it's kind of hard to get high. That's a hard thing. I guess if you pinpoint your, preg- your fertility super well, which you should do, then yeah, you can use pot to, to get your fucking done. Then stop smoking pot. And then, uh, then start up again later as soon as you can. <laughs> I, have, I have one more prescription and I'm, I'm flying blind here. but And I want to know what you would think of this. If you're going to have sex just once a month during the three or four days that you're fertile or maybe a couple of times during those three or four days, would it help during the, the four weeks or three and a half weeks when you're not fertile to ha- masturbate together, to have some non-procreative, non-PIV sex that is just about pleasure, that is just about connection, just about release – and not sex on a mission. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, that's of course, that's a great idea. So if you're relieved from having to do it every other day because you're monitoring your fertility, don't not have some sex the rest of the time. The sex just for pleasure, the kinky fun sex that you say that you miss, have that sex and keep his dick out of your pussy because you're not. Yeah, you got to save it up. He's got to save it up. Get him a chastity <laughs> cock cage. Make him save it the fuck up for real. No, no, no. Don't do that unless you, that turns you on. That's kind of the kink you enjoy. But like 
mix in with the purposeful, like on a mission, grim association, potentially if you've had some miscarriages sex with some just for us, just for pleasure, just for fun, just for the connection, just for the intimacy sex. You're allowed to have that too while you're on the get knocked up mission. Good advice, Dan. You're good at this. You're good at it too. You should come on the show more often. Sometimes I wish you were my co-host and we talked all the time. And uh, congratulations on your two terrific kids. I remember what that journey was like. Uh, and I'm really happy for you. Thank you, Dan. Hi, Dan, Nancy, and the tech-savvy at-risk youth. I'm a 29-year-old bi-male living uh, in the East Coast. And I've been seeing somebody for about four months, I'd say, and everything is great except... She is a terrible kisser, and I'm not quite sure what to do about it or if, even if there is anything to do. She kisses, basically, imagine somebody just putting their face against your face and doing nothing. That is, that is effectively what she does when she kisses. She doesn't move her mouth. That, that's true for kissing anywhere. If she kisses you on the neck, anywhere, she just does nothing. Eventually, she'll get you know, warmed up, and she will just open her mouth. She doesn't move her tongue. She doesn't use her tongue at all. She just stays there. She just places her face against mine and kind of does nothing. She is the same age as me and I know has had serious long-term partners before. So I'm wondering, one, has she been trained to kiss in this way or is this like a way that she really likes? When we first started dating, I noticed this and I kept making a point to be like, oh, I really like it when somebody uses a lot of more tongue when they kiss me or when, you know, she kisses me on the neck or something like that. I always say, Oh, it's great when you do, you know, X kiss me with your tongue. And I always tried to sort of play up my enjoyment whenever that infrequently happened, but it, it mostly doesn't. And the sort of subtle hints kind of went nowhere. So I, I'm wondering, do I directly address the, the, the shitty kissing or, but I feel like that's going to lead to a negative response. If she, she's in, that's like a terrible thing to say, like, oh, you're a shitty kisser, especially to somebody who's presumably been making out with people for a long period of time. Or is it just, you know, she is, that's just her kissing style and that's effectively a price of admission. Thank God you've only been dating this woman for four months. Not because at four months you can pull the plug and walk away, but you're not four years in. So that when you go to tell her, look, I don't really like the way that we kiss. This isn't really working for me. The kissing is a real problem she doesn't have to think, oh, my God, four years, four years every time we've kissed, he's been like, ick. And now he's telling me four months in. This is the right time to go to someone and say, we need to work on kissing or that's not how I like to get blown or these positions don't work for me. You've been doing something and, you know, initially you're not going to like bust out a lot of criticism. You've been getting to know each other. And now's the time for an assessment. Now's the time for some constructive, not criticism, engagement. You want to get on the same page about kissing. Maybe this is the way her previous boyfriends or girlfriends enjoyed being kissed. Can't imagine that, but maybe at, at this young age and 29-ish is still pretty young. A lot of people are pretty inhibited in their 20s. They don't communicate well about sex in their 20s. Maybe she's just coasted along with her lips parted, pressed against someone's face, thinking that's kissing because no one's told her that she has muscles in her face and muscles in her lips and she should use them. And it's about puckering and pressing and engaging and suction and tongue, not just about a wet, damp hole pressed against another wet, damp hole. So 
say to her, not you're a lousy kisser, say to her, there's a way I like to be kissed. Sounds like you already broached that subject, but you weren't emphatic enough and you didn't stick with it. Tell her there's a way I like to be kissed and we need to work on kissing because everything else is great. Really like you, really like the sex, really like the penetrative sex, really like whatever else we're doing, really like spending time with you. But the kissing just, it's really important to me and I need it to happen for me in, a, in this way, in a more engaged, active mutually participatory manner and then it's a problem you guys are going to work on together and she's learning how to kiss differently not because the way she kissed before was so lousy even if it was lousy but because there's a way you like to be kissed and i'm sure she would like to kiss you in the way you would like to be kissed but you can't just always in a situation like this drop hints you gotta risk being direct think about it you're 29 years old you stay with this person for the rest of your life 50 years of this What's going to be worse, the awkwardness of really speaking up right now in this moment or 50 fucking years of being kissed like this? Possible she doesn't like kissing. Some people do a thing badly because they don't like that thing and they don't want to have to do that thing. And they think, well, if I'm just lousy at this thing long enough, they'll stop asking for my lousy blowjobs or my awful kisses or fucking me doggy style or whatever it is that they want to do that I hate. I'll do it badly. Maybe it's that. So you should also say to her when you're having this conversation, do you just not like kissing? And that may be a price of admission that you're willing to pay. Maybe a price of admission you're not willing to pay. But if she's doing this badly because she'd really rather not be doing it, that's a whole other conversation. And she may need a whole other partner if kissing is important to you. There are people out there who don't like kissing and would rather not. But they know it's expected of them. And so they lay there with their mouths open, allowing you to kiss them. And hoping that one day you'll stop. If that's what she's up to, that's what's going on for her, you have to draw her out about it. And then that's a whole other conversation you need to have with her. There also could be other things going on. There's a million different things that can be going on. How's your oral hygiene? Maybe she doesn't want to kiss you because you don't floss and you don't brush your teeth and your breath stinks. And she's just holding her nose, closing her soft palate up against the back of her throat, closing off her sinuses and hoping that this will pass quickly. Could be you. So you have to go into that conversation prepared, not just to give criticism and instruction, constructive engagement, but also to receive it in case the issue here isn't her, but you. We are going to take a quick break from your calls to have a conversation about this culture of consent, affirmative consent. Yes means yes, not no means no, that we're all here trying to create. Some people bump on that. Some people think sex should just happen, quote unquote, naturally. And if you have to stop and talk about it or ask someone's permission, that's unsexy. Joining us by phone, Emily Best. She is a filmmaker and the founder of Seed and Spark, a kind of GoFundMe for filmmakers. And she's the co-creator of Fuck Yes, a Seeded and Sparked series of sexy short films conceived, written, directed, produced, shot, and edited by women with the aim of showing that these consent convos can be sexy. Hey, Emily, how are you? I'm really well, thanks. How are you? Great. Uh, I watched a whole bunch of these Fuck Yes videos over the last uh, 24 hours, and congratulations, and they are terrific. What inspired you to, to start this project? Um, there were sort of two catalyzing events. Um, the first was, uh, my little sister, who's almost 20 years younger than I am, uh, was entering high school. And honestly, I started losing sleep at night thinking about how to help prevent her from making a lot of the mistakes that I did. And they were mistakes that I made uh, 
that had to do with sort of stepping over my own feelings so as not to seem difficult or even worse, uncool. Um, mm-hmm. And that was the first. And the second was, um, so when I was in my mid-20s, I was living in downtown Sacramento and my neighbors were like the vice president and the treasurer of the Sacramento Leathermen. They were like tried and true BDSM practitioners and educators. <laughs> and, oh my God, how cool. Um, and I had studied anthropology and like, you know, I would go into their, uh, into their living room and there was like, you know, stuff around. There was like a cross and flogging materials, things that were completely unfamiliar to me as a rather vanilla person. Um, I didn't even know to call myself that until I met them actually. Um, and, uh, my friend David provided me just a bunch of books about the origins of BDSM. They were from practitioners and psychologists and historians. And I, I read through them all. And while it never uh, sort of tipped me over into feeling like that was, I wanted to incorporate it in my sex life. I remember reading about negotiation and this idea that before a scene, you would sit down with someone or, you know, talk to them over a drink at a bar and say, here's what I'm into. Here's what you're into. These are my limits. This is how we're going to like, make sure we stay within those limits. And I remember, I think I was 25 here's my safe word. Yeah. And here's my safe word. And I was 25 or 26 and I was married. And I remember thinking that feeling like I had been robbed. Like this kind of sexual negotiation existed and nobody ever taught it to me as something that I could have. I was so astonished. I talk about this a lot and I think it's this advantage that same sexers have over opposite sexers because vaginal intercourse is this default assumption when a man and a woman who are going to have sex for the first time, they get to consent, they get to yes, they stop negotiating, they stop talking because what's going to happen after I would like to have sex with you is just assumed. And when two dudes are going to bed together for the first time, I call them the four magic words. They get tossed out there. At some point, one or the other or both say, what are you into? And at that moment, you don't have to be into BDSM even. At that moment, you can rule anything in. You can rule anything out. uh, You're empowered. Now, not all straight people don't ask that question and not all gay people do. There are certainly gay people out there who blunder on into sex without asking or being asked that question. And there are straight people who are conscientious. But generally, straight people can avoid that question all their lives. But gay people can't avoid that question all their lives because what's going to happen once we go to bed together, we have to talk that out. We don't know. And it's so basic and also delicious and sexy um, because it's really intimate. And so I Mm -hmm. I think part of it is this like, you know, an avoidance of intimacy because that's not cool the first time around. Right. It's just supposed to be this kind of dispassionate, uh, you know, it, and sometimes in the service of like seeming more sex positive of just being like, yeah, mm-hmm. I don't really care. It's all good with me. One of the things I love about your web series is that it's pushing back against, I think a lot of cultural messaging that people get about sex and how sex is supposed to work from film and television where people yes. don't stop to negotiate. That's that It right. just happens naturally. People get carried away uh, in the passion of the moment and they just magically want to do the same things and they magically snap together like a couple of sex Legos and you didn't have to talk about it. And, and, and people get it in their heads that if you have to pause to talk about it, that you're uh, doing it wrong, that maybe you're not a match, 
that maybe you're not right for each other, that, that you're inept or they're inept. And people just don't know what it looks like to have a sexy conversation, mostly straight people. Because I think, you know, if you're gay and you're 30 and you've had like a, 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 the kind of sex and enough sex partners and had a couple of boyfriends, you've had conversations that were fucking hot. Negotiations can be goddamn sexy. And that's what I really love about your web series. It shows that these negotiations are sexy and it shows it in the same medium where people get the opposite message constantly from film and television uh, and web, other web series about the way sex is supposed to work. It's just supposed to happen. It's supposed to break out. And that's not the way it works well. It can work that way. You can certainly float along on assumptions and default settings and not c- talking and have decent sex or bad sex. Maybe sometimes every once in a while great sex. But you're much likelier to have an awkward encounter if you guys can't use your words. And that's, that's in a phrase we use a lot on my show, use your words. And that's what your whole show is about. You're showing us people who are using their words. That's right. And you're, you're much likelier to have experiences where one person walks away confused, actually, about how they felt about it, if you haven't talked about it. Um, mm-hmm. Because in the absence of talking about it, people are making decisions as individuals rather than as a, a, a pair coming together. Um, the, and really, the, the, the catalyst um, ultimately was a conversation I had with a friend in a bar. Um, and I was talking about this experience of learning about negotiation. And he was like, yeah, but, you know, talking about, uh, talking about it in the moment makes it unsexy, just as you said. And I leaned over and I said, do you mean to tell me that if you meet a hot girl in a bar and before you go home, she leans over and whispers in your ear everything she's into and would like to do? And he immediately was like, oh, no, okay, that'd be totally hot, Right. And it's interesting how deep the messaging has gotten that we're all telling ourselves this story about if there's good chemistry, it will just happen. But chemistry is the wrong word. What, what you see in Hollywood is alchemy. What you see is two elements come together and magically create sex gold when that's not remotely how real sex works. So it's been really fun, actually, to work with lots of different actors and create lots of different pairs. And even the actors in the scenes are like, oh, my gosh, like, I can't I kind of can't wait to, like, go home and incorporate this into what I'm doing. And it's getting them talking about it and starting conversations. Something I thought was really interesting is that um, after we made the first four episodes, I showed them to my sister and I asked her to show them to her friends. and she came back and said, you know, I didn't know that you could talk about stuff like this. <laughs> and they were, they were really uh, attracted to the conversations being had by these older couples to them, you know, these, these folks in their mid twenties and early thirties are older couples. And it felt like aspirational and exciting to them. And that's what I think is really um, like gratifying about, about doing this. One of my favorites uh, features a teen couple and they pull up in a car to his house and he's trying to invite her in, but he isn't being direct. And I'm going to play a little clip here. Are you trying to bribe me inside to have sex with you? What? No, 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 no. You are. You totally are. You're trying to like lure me into your house with like no parents and video games and candy. Pie. Whatever. That's totally weird, Luke. No, 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 no. I I just thought you liked those things, and... (sighs) Who am I kidding? Yes, you're right. And now I feel like a total creeper. 
Sorry. Well, do you want to have sex with me? <laughs> yes. Yes, I really do. Do you want to have sex with me? I don't know. Fair enough. I wouldn't want to have sex with myself either. I mean, I did. Then you're just like so awkward about the video game. And the pie, right? Totally. I mean, I'll just let myself out. But then again, I really like you. What I loved about that clip was that the person who was being invited in for sex without the person doing the invitation or giving the invitation being honest, just cut through the bullshit and said, this is what's really going on here, right? And it didn't ruin everything. And it was, and I, one of the things I loved about it was the girl, it was the woman in that moment, the, the, the young woman, she's a teenager, uh, who cuts through the bullshit, knows she's being hit on, but the guy is doing it in this kind of suave way that guys are instructed by media and film and television to do it. You don't say, I would like to have sex with you. Would you like to have sex with me? You say, you want to come inside and play video games? My parents aren't home. And <laughs> what's so good about the episode is it shows that one person can call the question. One person can say, here's what's really going on here, right? Am I wrong? This is what's really going on here. And it won't ruin the possibility. They end up having sex. I think that's really important is that, um, you know, there's that famous Margaret Atwood quote, right? Men are afraid women are going to laugh at them and women are afraid men are going to kill them. And Mm. there's been some really interesting commentary recently. Um, I feel like there was an incredible piece in the cut that was talking about how actually everybody is terrified of sexual rejection. Um, because of the messages that we're being given constantly that like our sexual acceptance is paramount to survival. And, right. you know, maybe there's something very like base and biological there. People are so afraid of sexual rejection that they won't ask, do you want to have sex with me for fear that because they don't the want no. That's right. And, and the idea that like any no is the worst no. And so when we were really trying to figure out like what is a fuck yes episode versus any other episode of people having sex, a really important core feature of them is there is a negotiation and guess what? Nobody dies. In fact, it gets only hotter and more intimate and closer. And maybe as was the case with the teenage couple uh, in the episode I really enjoyed, they wind up having sex, but not the sex that either of them uh, initially thought they were going to have or wanted to have, but they kept negotiating, kept talking, kept rolling with sort of, other incidents, things that, you know, fate threw at them and they still wound up having a really terrific sexual experience, just not the one either of them uh, expected to have. But they were giving consent and renegotiating as they progressed through the evening. They didn't get to consent and then the sex happened. They kept talking, kept consenting, kept drawing each other out and the sex then was happening during the conversation about consent. That the conversation about consent and opting in and yesing was ongoing. It was it was woven through the sexual experience. And that is so true this to my experience. Thing. I don't, I've actually never thought of it this way, but like, I don't know why we don't think sex also includes talking. Like the talking <laughs> does in my house. is actually a part of the sex. <laughs> Use your words. It's hot. Use your words. It's hot. So, so this, this idea that somehow words are not part of sex is really funny like moaning is a part of sex, right? Or saying, oh God, or oh yes, is a part of sex, but somehow the other words are not also a part of sex. This is a very peculiar thing we have decided. 
It's film. It's television because people yeah. look at each other and they, they you can see and we're, we're, we're trained to, to infer that, oh, my God, they're on the same page. They want the same things. And then they come together and magically, of course, that's what they wanted. Ironically, if you ever look at a film script, you will see the inner monologues of the characters kind of written out. You will see the words that aren't spoken in the film at that moment. And the actors and the directors, they're using their words to sort of unpack what's going on in this moment, but the actors don't say them out loud. But they're there in the script, and then they're implied in the film. And I just think that it's sexier to say it, and anybody who says it is going to have better sex. One last question for you before you go, uh, and it's sort of a challenge for Fuck Yes, because you guys have made two seasons. Is that right? That's right. 14 total episodes, yeah. And you're raising money through Seed and Spark for a fourth season or a third season, we, pardon me. We, we haven't actually launched another campaign yet, um, but we may very well soon. Well, I have a suggestion for an episode in season three. Great. Because all the episodes I saw, and I, I didn't get to watch them all, so maybe you already did this, in which case I apologize and you just should, I will go watch it right after we talk. But sometimes when you have these negotiations, you realize you're not right for each other. Sometimes you have these negotiations and you realize, yeah, no, that we wouldn't be a match. And you have all these negotiations where people get on the same page and they are a match and they are right for each other. But you know, one of the things people fear with rejection is if you have the conversation and you realize you're not a match, then it's over. And often you know, you have the conversation, you realize that you're not a match. Then you become friends. Then you become each other's wingmen. You know that person. You know what they're after. It's not you. You may have a friend who's exactly what they want. And enjoys exactly what they enjoy. And it's been sure. my experience when you, you have the conversation, you use your words and you realize, yeah, or we're both tops or I'm not into your kinks or, you know, I'm not your type, even though I was hoping I might be. And if you can have the conversation, if you can use your words and you don't get your ego all wrapped up in the rejection, because I think people should welcome rejection, because if this person isn't right to you, you're wasting your time with them. And the sooner you get to the honest no, the sooner you can go find somebody who is right for you. But if you're a human being, as you have that conversation, even if you get rejected, you can leave that experience with a friend and a reference. That's somebody who, if you can have the conversation and accept rejection gracefully or, or meet out rejection humanely, that's a person who will vouch for you to their friends. That's a person who, if they know somebody who's right for you, will say so, will, will introduce you to that person. So I would challenge you to do a fuck yes where the c couple that's having the conversation about consent doesn't wind up in bed together, realizes they don't belong in bed together. Sure. There's a, a couple of episodes about um, definitely changing course. So there's an episode called Threesome, uh, where there's a chance for a same-sex couple to uh, invite a third over and it makes one of them uncomfortable. And what I love about it is it's somebody perfectly reading nonverbal no cues and mm. creating a conversation about them. Um, and the second is an episode called Friend Sex, where a couple negotiates sort of uh, a one-time only friends with benefits and sticks to it. Um, and so I do, I do think we explore that and we have talked a lot about, and you know, this has been an evolving process. Like the notion of fuck yes is what is ultimately, uh, what we're trying to do is get somewhere that people feel really good about. So, um, I like that idea and it's interesting to think about how to make sure, as you say, they sort of stick the landing and everybody walks away feeling like they had a great experience because that's ultimately I, I think, what we want to show. You know, if you, if, if we've identified fear of rejection as this 
big problem when it comes to sexual negotiation that people will hem and haw or try to manipulate others into a sexual experience without ever asking directly lest they hear no and sort of embedded in that is you may end up having sex with someone who would have said no had you asked directly if you keep sort of weaseling around. I think we should show that rejection can be positive too. Yeah, I mean, I really agree with you. I think I think the um, the thing that is important is for people to feel like they can move it in a direction that they're comfortable with, whatever that is, right? And that uh, that no is you know yes to yourself, right? Ultimately, I think that's really smart. Emily Best, co-creator of Fuck Yes, founder and CEO of Seed and Spark. Where can my listeners go find the Fuck Yes videos? Please watch all 14 episodes streaming right now on Seed and Spark's brand sparkly new uh, streaming service. All right, Emily Best, thank you so much for joining us. Loved the thank series. You. Going to be recommending it to a lot of people. Thank you so much. Hey, Dan Savage and the Tech Savvy at Risk Youth. I have a question about something I recently went through. I am a bisexual female who also identifies as poly. I have two friends who are married who are as well. After months of being purely platonic friends, things started to get a little physical when they made a move on me. After that, we had a talk and agreed to take things slow and just see where things go. Open-ended, which I like, while I get to know people. After a month of fucking, I brought up the question again if we were on the same page and keeping things slow. And they said yes, but that this is only a friends with benefits situation and that it would never turn into something serious. At this point, I wasn't angry, but just realized they couldn't give me what I want, so I took a step back out of it. I said I was fine not knowing if something would happen or not, but not okay with knowing I would get no emotional commitment out of it at any point. After this went down, there was feelings of anger, and they were upset at me, and they thought we had something quite good, and I should have just let things happen and not read too much into things. They said, Who knows, maybe something would have eventually happened, even though earlier they said they never want to open up to a third person. They said I basically scared them off. Is it wrong to want to be upfront and know that people are at least wanting the same things in life and relationships? Should I not have asked that question early on? I didn't ask them to commit, just to know that they were open to the emotional connections with a third as well, since I am poly in the sense of sexual and emotional commitments as well. I feel like being poly, you always, always have to communicate, and I like having everything on the table. Thanks for any advice you might have, Dan. So what they told you on your way out the door was this thing that you hoped might be possible and that they told you was not possible could have been possible if you'd only stuck around a little bit longer. They're playing head games. That's bullshit. They're guilt-tripping you on the way out the door because they're going to miss your pussy. And they hoped it would stick around a little bit longer, but on their terms. And their terms include no emotional commitment or engagement. And that wasn't okay with you. You want, if you're going to continue to see them regularly, you want this to be on a relationship track potentially. You want emotional engagement and potentially an emotional commitment. You're thinking poly triad and they're thinking friend with benefits or peace on the side that they hold at arm's length emotionally. So you guys weren't right for each other. And on your way out the door, they were angry, they were hurt, and so they dangled in front of you this thing that you said that you wanted that they already told you you couldn't have to make you feel like you'd made a mistake in packing up your pussy and going. And you hadn't made a mistake in packing up your pussy and going. You had, at the end of the four weeks, determined that you guys weren't right for each other, poly-wise or fucking around-wise, that they didn't want what you wanted, 
and you didn't want what they were offering and it's over. Good. Should be over. There are other couples out there who will be open to the kind of relationship that you wish to have. They weren't that couple. And what they said to you on your way out the door, what you wanted could have been possible if you only stuck around, even though we already told you it wasn't possible. That was said in anger. That was said in hurt. That was said in assholery. And you shouldn't pay it any mind. This is in response to the caller on episode 592 who was concerned about when to disclose that she was a virgin. Dan, she never said that the person that she was going to be losing her virginity to was the one that she wanted to spend the rest of her life with as much as she wanted to make sure that there was a certain level of emotional intimacy, which seems fair to me. My advice to her would be that if she doesn't want to immediately disclose the virginity part, she can make it clear to her partners that sex is something that she wants to wait for until she feels a certain level of emotional intimacy with them. Later on, she can disclose the virginity part, but regardless of that, it sounds like her opinions about when she is ready have more to do with closeness than long-term guarantees. The first time I had sex, I waited until I was in love, and since then have felt more comfortable having a certain level of intimacy before allowing someone to be inside me. Don't worry so much about the title of virgin, and instead, just focus on what feels right for you. Hi, Dan. Not a question, just a comment. The guy who got an escort and then his wife was upset that it cost $400. Now, I'm a longtime sex worker, and $400 is actually not that much for an escort. If anybody thinks that an escort should cost less than $400, and I know that there are people who do charge less, this is our body and our lives. Like We're worth that much money and more. It just was really upsetting to hear somebody think that it wasn't worth it or that was too much. I understand some people have financial constraints, but like if you're going to get a sex worker, go into that arrangement knowing that that person is worth as much money as they ask for and more. Hi there. I'm calling about episode 592 and the woman who called about men who would only talk about themselves during dates. I think she should just stick to listening to them all the way through and, and see how long they'll talk for. And then at the end of the date, when they inevitably try and hook up with her, just turn around and tell them that she w- wanted to hook up with them and then now thinks they're going to be way too selfish to, uh, to be any good in bed. I think that probably will fix the problem. Before we leave you there this week, I want to let you know Minneapolis, Minnesota, Madison, Wisconsin, and Royal Oak just outside Detroit, Michigan. I am coming to town, Minneapolis, Friday, March 23rd at the Pantages Theater, Madison, Saturday, March 24th at the Barrymore Theater, and Royal Oak outside Detroit, Sunday, March 25th at the Royal Oak Music Theater. To get tickets for these Savage Love Live events, go to savagelovecast.com slash events. I will be taking your questions. We will be having a dialogue and having some fun. Please join me, Minneapolis, March 23rd, Madison, March 24th, Royal Oak, March 25th. Again, savagelovecast.com slash events for tickets. All right, we're going to leave it there. 206-302-2064 is the number here at the Savage Lovecast. If you'd like to record a question or a comment for a future show, give us a buzz. 206-302-2064. Get your Savage Love t-shirts and coffee mugs and my books at savagelovecast.com. Click on shop and be sure to listen to Blabbermouth, the Strangers Weekly News and Politics podcast hosted by Eli Sanders with me and Rich Smith, Katie Herzog, and other rotating regulars. Blabbermouth, wherever you get your podcasts. Follow me on Twitter at Fake Dan Savage. Follow Emily Best on Twitter at Emily Best. 
Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartuni and, and me and the tech-savvy at-risk youth and Nancy. We will all be back at you next week with another installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thank you for downloading.